0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, a couple of announcements before we get started. First of all, tomorrow from 11 to 1, they're going to be having the viewing for the uh, uh, memorial service for the funeral for Uh, Thelma Carnegie, and then the memorial service is at 1 o'clock, and then there will be uh, that will be followed by interment out at Forest Park, uh, Lawndale. So that'll make for a rather lengthy uh, afternoon trying to get over over, out there. Second announcement, and I want to put this out now so people can begin to think about it. I think that uh, it's been up on the internet for a while that we're planning a trip to Israel next summer. Now's the time to be thinking and planning about it. We're trying to get everything done right now that we can. It, uh, uh, we're going to leave approximately, because this may vary a little bit, but approximately the 2nd of June, which is a Monday. And the first part of the trip is about six days, and that will be a module or an extension where we go to Turkey. We're going to do the seven letters. <coughs> I mean, the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, plus Istanbul and a couple other sites, because Colossians there, and by then maybe we'll be teaching, we'll, uh, we'll be in Colossians. So we're going hit, to hit that at the beginning, and then from there we're going to go to uh, Israel, and then we'll have about 10 days in Israel. So we're going to set it up so that people can do both. Or they can do one or the other so that if you can't take off of work for two weeks or if the cost of the total thing is is prohibitive, then people can just go to to one and just go to Israel or they can just go to the uh, Turkey module, either one. So you can be thinking about that, and we'll put some more details up on the the, uh, Internet. Turn the sound up. Just wanted to make sure, just see, make sure everybody's relaxed today. Have a little humor, okay? Well, before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I'll uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so thankful that we have you to come to; that you are an ever present, help in time of need, and that as we trust in you, we are going to uh, see your power, see your provision. And, Father, we understand that your plan for our lives is not always what we want it to be, but your plan for our lives is perfect, and it is our responsibility to adjust our thinking uh, to your plan and knowing that you have provided everything we need to fulfill uh, your plan for our lives. Father, we continue to pray for the Carnegie family, pray that you would comfort them uh, during this time of loss and that they would be a a tremendous testimony to those uh, around them At this particular time. Father, now as we study your word, as we get into some rather technical and detailed issues related to understanding uh, the dynamics of what goes on with sin and salvation, we pray that you would help us to think through these things fairly clearly and give us the ability to concentrate during this next hour. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and just by way of a little review, what we're trying to answer is a fairly tough question because in answering the question you have to do some theology it's not something that's just a matter of exegesis in fact I was rather pleased as I was looking at one commentary today that the author of the commentary made the point that even though this answering some of these questions gets off into the area of theology Beyond exegesis, see, you don't understand this, but that's the problem you have is that, that seminaries get all wrapped around the axe when they try to draw this technical distinction between. I'm all caught up here, something's not giving me enough room to uh, maneuver. So they make this distinction between exegesis and theology, and just about the time you want to answer a question, they'll say, "No, that's around the theology. This is an exegetical commentary. We won't go there." Wait a minute! I want my questions answered. You know, can't you put two and two together for me? So uh, I was pleased to read at least one commentary where the uh, author was trying to think through some of these issues, because the decision is how to you, do you. Um, how does sin get transmitted how does the sin nature get transmitted from one generation uh, to the next and the scriptures as I said I keep I don't know what the problem is here Give me one more room. somebody's been playing with this since last week no I think I've got it now since Sunday or Tuesday night somebody messed with it the problem that you get is that these are theological deductions like the angelic conflict and you, you look at certain passages and you go to passage A and you exegete it and you come to certain conclusions. And you go to passage B and you exegete that and you come to certain conclusions. And you do that about 10 or 12 times and then you start putting those conclusions together and that's where you do the real work of theology. And what, what gets complicated today is, should I just qu- close in prayer? Technology is giving me a headache already. We haven't even gotten started. Must be something good tonight. So, it's fun to think through these issues. And I was on the phone yesterday with a, a young pastor who's just got out of seminary. And he, he was t- telling me that when we were talking about this very issue, we've had two or three conversations over the last year about this particular subject. And he was telling me that at Dallas Seminary today, and I'm not saying this to dump on Dallas, but Dallas is pretty representative of the thinking of most evangelical scholars today, that they don't like using the word sin nature. They don't like using the word uh, nature because for some reason they think that indicates some sort of uh quantitative entity and, and they, they just, scholars get all wrapped around the axle trying to define what the nature is, where it is, a lot of issues like that so they don't like that, they just want to refer to it as terms such as flesh and the body of sin and then if you ask any more questions about trying to define things a little more, they won't go there uh, imputation of the sin nature, Adam's original sin is is questioned in terms of different uh, exegetical issues, and the point that I'm making is that, as you see uh, theology shift and evangelicalism shift away from some of the things that it's stood for and taught for probably one hundred and fifty years or more in American theology at least, uh, w- concepts such as uh, the the sin nature, uh, some other things that uh, they, they start making a little change over here and a little change over there and a little change over here. And after a while, these changes uh, kind of accumulate into some some significant so significant changes. And, and then people wake up and go, well, what happened? Well, it just is gradualism that takes place. And so whenever we teach a certain number of things, when I teach a certain number of things that are, a little more detailed, a little more complex, such as the angelic conflict or the transmission of the sin nature or the origin of human life, you have to realize that any of these things are built on a foundation of dozens, the exegesis of dozens and dozens of passages. And in today's world, that has seen just an unbelievable multiplication of theological positions in the last 30 years. It's, It's like... Let's say I mean this is just a off the top of my head sort of extrapolation of the way things have been. Let's say evangelicalism was comprised of maybe let's say 20 divisions, 20 theological positions in 1970. Today it would be close to 500. Every time you turn around somebody's coming up with some new view of something. I mean in 1960 there were very, very few, if any, evangelicals who questioned whether or not Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 referred to the fall of Satan. Today, if if you go to a theology or a commentary that's been written since 1980, I would say you've got nine chances out of ten that they would say that it, the, neither of those passages refer to the fall of Satan. That's how things have changed. Well, if you take... And I'm just using that as an example because we're going through that on Sunday morning. But if you take Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 out, they don't tell you about the fall of Satan. Nothing tells you about the fall of Satan. So if you start maneuvering like this, it really does domino into many, many areas of theology. And this is one of them. And as uh, as I was talking with this particular individual who comes out of the same background that most of us come out of... He said they don't even want. You know, when he was at seminary, he said they don't even want to discuss most of the things related to this because they've already made so many different exegetical decisions that they well, you can't even have a conversation with uh, about these things with them. So that just gives you an idea of how these things have changed uh, over the years. And so part of it is part of the uh, fast, uh, part. Part of the reality is that we need to take a little more time just studying these things and trying to help you understand the foundations of some of these views that they don't just, they're not just something somebody came up with. They have a foundation both historically in, in church history and they make sense contextually. So that's one reason I'm trying to think through some of these things and maybe articulate the same position in a little different way so that it makes uh, some sense to people. And Romans 5:12. Uh, and following is a passage that is frequently cited as a as a passage that supports the federal view of the transmission of the sin nature, that Adam was a representative. But it's not real clear. It, it is a deduction from the passage. It's not something that is specifically or overtly stated in the passage. But then on the other hand, as I've seen a number of 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 commentators and theologians make points about the uh, seminal position. They just sort of throw out Hebrews 7, 9, and 10 as as finalizing that without ever getting into some of the details of the exegesis there. And so there are these sort of theological assumptions. And what happens, I think, in in each generation is there are certain ideas that become trendy, and so everybody sort of gets on the trendy bandwagon that, oh, you know, the the new doctrine is that everybody's sort of figured out that Isaiah 14 doesn't refer to the fall of Satan, so let's all go with that. And, you know, Hebrews uh, 7, 9, and 10 doesn't, re- I mean, does, <coughs> argues for symbolism, and that's valid, so we'll just accept that and uh, and go right on. And some of the questions, I was talking to this one uh, fellow, seminary graduate, and he, we were just talking about the origin of human life and uh, the creationist position versus the um, uh, the creationist position versus the tradition position. And I remember having lively discussions about that in theology classes back in the 70s at Dallas Seminary. He said it's not even a discussion point anymore. It's like okay, this is you know they just throw out the tradition position. This is it, and the creationist position is just dismissed without even giving it uh, value as a legitimate position anymore. It's sort of dismissed out of hand, and nobody even wants to discuss it. Same thing with the federal versus seminal position. I've discovered uh, recently that the federal position is almost dismissed out of hand. In fact, somebody uh, somebody else who is a, uh, um, a member of the congregation was off at a, theologically oriented training session not too long ago and they brought up somebody made a comment about the transmission of Adam's original sin and they brought up the concept of both federalism and seminalism and the uh, pastor who was teaching just told him that nobody believes in federal federal representation anymore just that's ridiculous nobody believes, and just just dismissed it right out of hand without any any discussion and that's not true. It's not true. Acad- it, it's not true academically. In fact, I read a couple of commentaries on Romans that, have, that are very extensive and very detailed. And I don't agree with some of the things that are said in some of them because they come from a very, very strong Calvinist position. But they do both of them supported very well a federalist federal view of Romans chapter five that Adam is viewed in these passages as repre- as a representative of the human race. So we just live in a very strange time as far as I'm concerned. We've had all these people that, that, uh, were trained differently and now they, they seem to want to generate and come up with all kinds of new ideas and people become enamored with something new and think that because it's new, it must be better than what I heard for the previous 30 or 40 years of my Christian life. So let's get back into Romans 5. Now that I have editorialized for the last fifteen minutes, as we look at this passage, it's important to understand the basic the basic structures I've pointed out the last couple of times. Verse 12 begins with a comparison and contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's work on the cross. I think this is absolutely foundational to understanding what is going on, and why both aspects, there is a seminal aspect, that is a physical connection aspect, and there is a federal or a representative aspect. The physical aspect, as I've pointed out in the past, relates to the fact that the entire human race is viewed as a as a physical entity, so that Christ in his humanity is genetically related to every other human being, and so physically he is able to God's designed this f- fabulous plan where physically Jesus Christ can die as a substitute for everybody else because we're viewed as this, this organism, as it were. And then he also dies as a substitute. That's the representative idea. So both elements, uh, both elements are true. And this comes out of this comparison and contrast between Adam's sin and its effect on the whole human race and Christ's work and its effect on the whole human race. So verse 12 begins with the comparison and contrast. Verses 13 and 14 gives a definition of sin and death as an aside, and it's very important because in verses 13 and 14, we answer the question, is, and the question is answered, whether or not this sin for which we're condemned is our own personal sin, or the sin of Adam. And that is crucial. That little decision right there, is one that is so determinative in how you view and interpret so many other things in the in, in the Bible and how you understand the Christian life today. And if you don't make the right decision there, it's 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 like uh, trying to you know making a coming to a Y, let's say, in the road, a fork in the road, as you're coming out of New York and you're trying to go to Texas. And you know, at the initial split, you may only be a a few degrees off, but you're going to end up in Chicago rather than Houston as you go down the road. And that's what happens theologically is a lot of people just think, well, I'm just going to focus on this passage, and right here it seems to me that the sin here has to do with personal sin. Well, where that takes you inevitably when it comes to understanding the gospel, understanding how sin was taken care of, and this is one of the big problems that so many Christians have today is they're just so caught up with trying to deal with their own personal sin because they think that's what they're condemned for, is their own personal sin. And they know they're saved, and but they're not real sure of their salvation. You've got questions of assurance of salvation. But then when they're trying to live their Christian life, they just get so wrapped around the axle about their own personal sin, they get caught up with guilt. And the whole focal point of their Christian life is not sin, not sin, not sin. You don't understand 1 John 1, 9 correctly, and all of these other things come into play. And the result is that you have Christians who can't live the Christian life, and they don't understand the tremendous freedom that we have in Christ, and they can't relax in grace and the completed work of Christ on the cross. So verses 13 and 14 are are very important. And then verses 15 through 17 comes back to the con, comes to a contrast of, of Christ and Adam. So we understand what he's not talking about. The free gift isn't like the offense in verse 15. The gift is not like that which came through the one who was, who sinned in verse uh, 16. So it emphasizes that difference. And then verse 18 comes back to the uh, main analogy so 18 through 21 are very important for understanding what goes on in 12 through 14 and unfortunately most people try to interpret 18 through 21 uh, most of the commentators I looked at many theologians interpret 18 to 21 in light of verse uh, excuse me interpret verses 12 through 14 Uh, or the excuse me, they interpret 18 through 21 in light of 12 to 14 instead of 12 through 14 in light of the qualifications and, and making a priority out of 18 through 21. So, having said that, just as, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And the parallel that, that Paul is focusing in this analogy, the contrast that he goes to between Christ and Adam, is Christ is solely responsible for our salvation. Adam is solely responsible for sin and the spiritual death and the spread of spiritual death to all to all men. Now, the question at hand is how did death spread to all men and how did sin spread to all men? And I think it's important to understand this one term that's used in Romans uh, 512, and thus, that word thus is the Greek word hutos, and I keep coming back to this, I want to get this in your head. In, it means in this manner that I'm about to tell you. And thusly, it's so used the same way in John 3:16, for God so loved the world and that we have that word so, what does that mean? And a lot of people think it means for God loved the world so much. and doesn't mean that. It means God loved the world in this way. In what way? That he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, what follows this use of, of, of hutos is the example. And so what paul is saying is that in this manner in what manner in the manner of one man this is the manner which death spread to all men because all sinned and if you noticed here i have in uh, in brackets in adam positionally paul is goes through this passage very quickly you see you get a sense of his excitement he drops out words he breaks in the middle of a of a paragraph uh, uses various um Constructions that indicate that he is... Uh, hes, he's used, had, There's ellipsis here where he drops out words, and that shows his excitement. But if you're reading this, you should understand uh, and supply these other words, and they're, they're present from context, but we have to kind of think them through a little bit. Now, as you look at verse 12, he says, Just as through one man sin entered the world, death through sin... Thus, death, second mention of death, spread to all men because all sin. So, the focal point of the passage is really talking about uh, death. It's talking about the spread of death. Now, death is the penalty for sin. So, it's the result. So, if death spreads to all men, then the cause of that death also spread to all men. So, that by focusing on the consequence, the penalty of sin being for everyone, the, the, the sin nature the corruption itself should be spread also to all men so that's the focal point of this chiasm now another thing that we should note here is that in the phrase thus death spread to all men because all, all sin I already talked about that uh, death spread to all men we have uh, four questions that we have to address in which I've addressed all all of them already what is sin what is the penalty for sin what is the sin nature's relationship to the corporal human body we'll get into that some tonight and more next time and then uh, how is this passed on those two are what we're trying to answer right now what is sin when we looked at all the different Hebrew and Greek words for sin sin is the violation of, of God's character God's standard different words are used to indicate different dimensions of that missing the mark uh, the concept of trespass or transgress violating the law a known revelation you also have uh, words indicating the twisting uh, of a uh, the standard but it's the violation of that absolute standard in God's character it is God's character that's the benchmark against which Everything is measured. The penalty for sin, as I pointed out last time, is spiritual death, and we're, I'm going to go through that a little bit more uh, tonight. That you can't, you have to make this distinction between physical death and spiritual death, and that spiritual death is the is the penalty for sin. And then tonight, next week, I'm looking at this issue: of the sin nature's relationship to the corporeal. Uh, human body and how this is passed on to the human race. Now another thing we need to note here that is very important in terms of the grammar of the passage is that both the word for sin and the word for death always has the definite article in this passage. And what that indicates is that Paul is, is uh, focusing on a particular sin and a particular kind of death. He is singling that out as distinct from all other sin and all other death. So it is through one man that the sin entered the world. So this is talking, We, we, we theologians come to refer to this as original sin or Adam's uh, original sin. So it's through one man the sin entered the world and the death. And every time the word thanatos for death is used, in these verses it is always used with the article singling it out and uh, that's a very important understanding in terms of the, the nature of the of the article so we have see, uh, technical use of the article in the Greek which uh, frequently highlights the noun As something that's in a class by itself. We use, in English, you have a definite article because we have an indefinite article. A or an is an indefinite article, but in Greek, you technically don't refer to it as a definite article because there's no indefinite article. So it's just the article. And there's about nine or ten different ways in which the article is used in Greek, and it is not used to make the noun definite or not now that's really strange to those of us who are native english speakers because that's the primary and almost exclusive use of the article in english is it makes something definite as opposed to indefinite i went to uh, the doctor as opposed to just any doctor or i go to or, or, or i ate the uh, the sandwich as opposed to just any sandwich. You know, it's, it particularizes Uh, some some individual thing as opposed to just anything but we also have remnants of this absence of an article where the noun is still definite and especially British English well they'll talk about instead of going to the hospital they'll say we went to hospital well hospital is assumed to be inherently definite it's not just any hospital they went to the hospital but they drop out that article they went to university in American idiom, we always we we would always put an article in front of either one of those particular nouns. Uh, that's just that's a remnant of this particular idea that I'm talking about in Greek. Russian is really strange when you uh, have to translate definite concepts over into Russian because there's no article in Russian, and that's why if you hear a Russian speaker start speaking English, they have a difficult time with articles is because they don't have an article, a definite article in Russian. So it's very difficult to uh, translate some things in the scripture over into Russian because there's no article, n- no article whatsoever. But sometimes in Greek, the absence of an article uh, imp- is still, the, the noun is still definite even though the article is missing. Other times, even though the article is present, it's not particularizing the noun. It's, it's using it to indicate maybe a previous mention of the noun or any, any number of other things. So you have to uh, analyze context uh, a whole lot in order to do that. The article here is what's classified as the article par excellence. I'll just give you the definition of that. It's when the article is used to point out a, a noun that is, in a sense, in a class by itself. It's unique. It's a one-of-a-kind type of category. It's the only one deserving of the name. Uh, for example, if, um, and I'm reading this out of, uh, out of uh, Dan Wallace's grammar, it says, for example, if in late January someone were to say to you, did you see the game? You might reply, which game? They might then reply, the game, the only game worth watching, the big game, you know, the Super Bowl. This is the article used in a par excellence way. It is distinguishing that game from any other game. It is making it one of a kind, separating it out into its own class. And it's not necessarily used, as Wallace points out, for the best of a class. It could be used for the worst of a class, it is simply pointing out the extreme or unique uh, use of that particular noun. That's what we have here. Is it distinguishes this particular sin and this particular death from all other sins and all other deaths. Now, if you don't take the time to track down and identify the use of the article there, then you can get into some real exegetical. Uh, problems and come to some wrong conclusions. Well, there's another problem that comes up in here is just uh, identifying the kind of death that is here. And I pointed this out last time that a lot of uh, people aren't comfortable with distinguishing spiritual death from physical death, except you have passages like Ephesians 2.1, wh- which makes it very clear that there is this distinction. Paul addresses the uh, Ephesians and says, You were born dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, they were obviously physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. And then you have to define just exactly what that means, what's the nature of of regeneration, what happens in regeneration. And I I know I can't remember if I told you this last time or not, but this concept of spiritual death as the loss of the human spirit is another thing that many, many uh, contemporary Uh, theologians and commentators don't uh, accept anymore is this trichotomous view of man as man, soul, and spirit that spirit's lost at spiritual death and regained in in regeneration and so regeneration is no longer understood by them as gaining something at that point of salvation that had been lost by Adam, that something is quantitatively gained. For them it is just a Sort of a metaphor of a qualitative change that takes place. Notice they shifted from quantitative to qualitative. It's a quality change that takes place in the believer. So that, uh, I read an article a number of years ago in a theological journal by a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary who, who was, uh, writing an article critiquing this interchange that took place back in 1918 between Lewis Berry Chafer and Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Warfield was considered the the foremost conservative theologian of his day. He taught at Princeton University and he was a strong Calvinist and he read Lewis Berry Chafer's book, He That Is Spiritual, and wrote a very scathing book review of of that. And so that's what this this article was about and I'm not going to get into the technicalities of of that. But in the conclusion he said that one of the problems Lewis Berry Chafer had was he just had a low view of regeneration that he didn't understand that regeneration limits the power of the sin nature after salvation. See, what did he do? He made it qualitative so that after salvation, if you're truly regenerate, your sin nature just won't be as bad as it was before. See how that leads into lordship salvation? So all these different kinds of things uh, do connect with one another so we have to look at the kind of death that that is and I pointed that out last time that you have different kinds of death that are mentioned uh, mentioned in the scripture you have physical death which is separation of the soul from the body you have spiritual death which is what happens at with Adam at the moment that he sinned we have uh, the second death mentioned in hebrews nine twenty seven and revelation twenty twelve through fifteen which is the uh, Ongoing penalty on the unbeliever for his rejection of Christ for his lack of faith. We have operational death. James two twenty six. Faith without works, that is, faith without application, is dead. It is non productive or it is operational death. Then you have positional death, which is our position in in Adam, uh, living in the sin nature. Uh, our, excuse me excuse me positional death is our identification with Christ on the cross Romans chapter six verses two and three Colossians 2, 212 to20 33 uh, 3 is that we at the instant of our faith in Christ were identified with Christ's death, burial and resurrection and so his death becomes our death positionally. Then we have temporal death which is just living in extended uh, carnality, and then the seventh was related to to uh, uh, Abraham and sexual death beyond the uh, ability to uh, procreate. So those are the seven different kinds of death. And so every time you see death in the scripture, you have to decide what kind of death it is. Well, you also have another decision to make when you talk about sin. See, death is mentioned here, so you have to define which kind of death you're talking about. Then you have to talk about sin. Is this uh, which of the three different uses of sin is this talking about? Is this talking about Adam's original sin? Is this talking about personal sin? Or is this talking about the sin nature? And most people, when they read passages like this, they immediately want to read into the passage uh, personal personal sin. So you can once again get into... Uh, some problems if you go into this as personal sin. So we'll just look at at the weaknesses of that, first of all, by calling it option number one. This is a view that many people have taken historically. There's a couple of variations on it. Uh, The first variation, which we referred to the last couple of weeks, is to take the phrase, because all sinned. I think I have that up here. Let me skip past this. Okay, here we have, have our options. You can take sin as either personal sins or Adam's, uh, Adam's original sin. If you take the first option as personal sins, then the verse would read, just as through one man's sin, and there they would, sometimes you have people take that as sin, sin nature, otherwise it's just the fact of sin, the historical event of a sin, enters the world, and they would take that as, the Pelagian view would take that as historical and death through sin, and that would be applied only to Adam and death, thus they say death spread to all men because all sinned all committed personal sins, and the Pelagian view was that when people commit their first personal sin that 's when they that 's when they come under the penalty of spiritual death. Now, very few people take that view today uh, that 's not a problem that any of you have, but that 's the That's the old uh, Pelagian extreme view that Adam's sin only affected Adam. But another uh, sort of twist on that view is the view that the sin here refers to the sin nature. Just as through one man, the sin nature entered into the world, and death through sin, that is through the sin nature, and thus death spread to all men, because all have a sin nature. So the problem with this is that it doesn't fit the context. It's trying to add an intermediate step into the process, which is the sin, sin nature, that death comes to, let's personalize this, de- spiritual death comes to you as an individual because you, had it, you were born with a sin nature. See, the sin nature in this view isn't loaded with guilt. It's just, uh, just a sin, sin nature. But it's very important to note that the passage doesn't allow for some sort of intermediate uh, thing between Adam's sin and our condemnation. In verse 15 we read, For if by the one man's offense many died. See, it wasn't by the one man's offense many people got a sin nature and many died. It's his sin directly, not indirectly through a sin nature, but directly leads to the the spiritual death of, of the many. Uh, the, verse sixteen it says, "For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. It, it's that one offense immediately results in condemnation. Not the fact that you gain a sin nature. This view is only one step removed from the Pelagian view. Uh, you get into verse, verse 17, for by one man's offense, death reigned. It's Adam's sin is pictured in all these verses as immediately causing the fall and the condemnation and the guilt of the entire human race. It's not waiting upon its actualization by people who are born who either sin and then get a sin nature or just are born with a sin nature and then sin. In both of these views, it's really viewed as, as personal sin. And if this is personal sin, then Adam's sin really doesn't affect the entire human race and what you're condemned for is your personal sin. Now, the better solution to the problem is that the sin that we're condemned for is Adam's sin. So that when you read in verse 12, thus death spread to all men because all sinned, what is missing there in, as, as Paul's developing there, which what he just leaves out in ellipsis, is what I pointed out earlier, because all sinned positionally in Adam. When he sinned, we sinned. And now that may seem like an unusual position because we think in, in our world that, well, I'm accountable for my decisions. How can God condemn me for a decision that I didn't make? Maybe I'd have made a different decision. What uh, Now, as I pointed out in the past, no, I wouldn't. And God in his omniscience knows that. But there's something that's more fundamental to this, and that goes a little bit against the grain of, of how most modern men think, and that is this whole concept of corporate unity. And I alluded to that earlier in terms of why Christ can die for the whole human race because we're, the whole human race is viewed as a corporate unity in contrast to the angels. And I pointed that out the last few weeks on Sunday in our study of, of angelology is that the angels were created individually. And let me take the rest of class to go back and show an Old Testament illustration of this corporate unity, how the whole becomes guilty of a decision made by one person, that just seems to run so counter to a lot of things we understand but this is this is fundamental to all of the to much of the Old Testament. I could go, and so just for prep school teachers who want to have another illustration, I could go to the episode at the end of Second Samuel when, when David takes the census. It's David's sin. He takes a census of the people in violation of God's law. And what happens? God's going to judge the nation. And he's given three options as to how God is going to judge him, and he picks the option of a plague. And so the angel of death comes, and there's this plague that goes through the nation for about three days, and thousands are killed. Because of because of David's sin, see, it's viewed as a corporate entity where David is viewed as the representative of the people. So this idea of one person representing the whole is is uh, flows through all of the Old Testament. But I think the, uh, a really good example is in Joshua chapter seven. So turn back with me to the book of Joshua. Now let me set this up because you can't understand chapter 7 without really understanding chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the battle of Jericho. And we all know J- Joshua at the battle of Jericho, but that's not exactly the point that I want to focus on here. It's the mandate that he was given. God gave a specific mandate as to how Joshua was going to defeat the, uh, the and conquer the city of Jericho and just exactly what the people were to do and what they were not to do. And so look at verse 17. Joshua 6:17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it except for Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house because she hid the messengers that were sent. Notice even in that you have a representative Volitional decision. Rahab made the decision to hide the two spies, not her family. But her family gets blessed by association because of this concept of, of, of corporate unity and one person making a decision as a representative for, for a group. So Rahab's decision means that the whole family is going to live. And then verse 18, the, uh, the instructions go on to say, and you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things. The accursed things, they refer to the things that were under the ban, that they were not supposed to, to take. They were supposed to destroy everything. And, and so they were to abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things. That word for accursed things doesn't mean these things are cursed in some kind of juju black magic uh, concept, but they are banned. They are not to be taken By the people, they were supposed to be destroyed. All of the uh, riches, the gold and the silver, were to be taken to the temple. And everything else was supposed to be killed. And the people were not to profit from the destruction of Jericho. So we read in verse 19, "...but all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated." And that word is from the Hebrew word kadosh, meaning set apart to the Lord... And they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the mandate was to destroy everything in the city. Verse 21, they utterly destroyed all those in the city, man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Everything living was supposed to be killed. That was the mandate. But not everybody followed the law. Look at chapter 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. Notice, the children of Israel, there is a corporate phrase. The whole nation, everybody else in that nation, there's approximately 2 million Jews, 1,999,999 of them did exactly what God said, but one did not. But because one did not, what does the text say? The children of Israel committed a trespass just because one person disobeyed God. See, that's that principle of corporate unity and one person representing the the whole and his sin being imputed to the whole. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. Now, I often wondered, why does it give us all that genealogical data? The reason it does is because it locates him as being genetically related to the whole of the tribe of Judah. It goes back to Judah. He's in the tribe of Judah, and Judah is part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he is, it's making the point that he is an Israelite, and he can represent the whole of the nation. So Achan, the son of Carmine, took of the accursed things. He saw some of the gold and silver and decided, well, nobody's watching. I'm going to stash this inside my rucksack and take it back to my tent, and then I'm going to have a little extra wealth. But God saw his sin. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now, that phrase does not mean that God just suddenly got angry because God knew in eternity past that this would take place, but it is an idiom indicating the. Harshness and the severity of God's uh, judgment on Israel. So Achan sins, but the whole nation is going to be uh, judged, and uh, as a result of this, that sin of Achan is imputed to the rest of the nation. He is that federal representative. So the next event is they have to go up the road a little further northwest to the next city, which is Ai. And they are going to conquer it, but there's a different strategy from God. Uh, verse two. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is b- beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, "Go up and spy out the country." So the men went up. He sent out his reconnaissance team, and they spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said that, "Don't let everybody go up. It's a it's a smaller, less well defended." A city, we can do this with two or 3,000 people. Now, we haven't noticed a reference to God or directions from God at this point. The uh, pre-incarnate Christ is the general. He is the head of the army of Israel as depicted back in chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. But they're not going to the commander-in-chief for directions here for their strategy. So they decide they can do it two or 3,000 men, and they go up. So they send 3,000 men and they get routed. They attack Ai, and Ai soundly and roundly defeats them. And in verse 5, the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shevarim and struck them down on the, on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Now, let's stop a minute and talk about this. 36 people got killed, lost their lives because of Achan's sin. Does that fit your preconceived notion of of justice? Probably not. So we need to, what, change our understanding of God or change our understanding of justice? We need to change our understanding of justice because there's this corporate thing because of one sin that was a secret sin and nobody else in Israel knew what Achan did but because he is part of that corporate unity, the nation has lost their spiritual power. They are out of fellowship. They're in car- the whole nation is in carnality, and they're under divine discipline. And they are not going to succeed at anything until they take care of the sin that is part of the of the corporate whole. So they they. Um, there's these 36 men, and it probably didn't appear to be too just to them that they lost their lives, but this is how divine justice works. And then Joshua didn't appear to be too just to him. He has his own little pity party and tears his clothes, falls on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, and he blames God. Look at verse 7. Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Why did this happen? It's all your fault, God. If you hadn't brought us in here, this wouldn't have happened. We shouldn't have suffered this defeat. See, even Joshua has to have his concept of, of, uh, of divine justice adjusted by, by revelation. And so God comes to him, in verse 10, it says, Get up, why are you lying on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. Notice the corporate unity sin. Now, Joshua doesn't even know about Achan's sin. Nobody does. It was a sin that was in secret, but it is a sin that is imputed to the whole. It is one person's sin. He stands as a representative for the whole and his sin becomes the sin of the whole nation, and the whole nation suffers the consequences uh, for his sin. And so as a result of that, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. What's the solution? The solution, this is a great Old Testament story to emphasize the whole doctrine of confession and forgiveness. They have to... Be sanctified. God gives gives him the instructions, get up, sanctify the people. That's what confession is. Confession is is practical, experiential sanctification. You have become unsanctified experientially when you sin because you're in carnality. And so at, at confession, when we are cleansed from all unrighteousness, we become sanctified experientially we're back in fellowship and that's what has to happen here corporately get up sanctify the people and say sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord God of Israel there is an accursed thing in your midst O Israel you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you so the whole point is that until they deal with the sin in their midst they will never experience victory in the plan of God. And that's the same thing that's true for believers, that unless you deal with the sin that's in your life through the application of the Word, not because you're going around uh, self-absorbed, contemplating your navel, trying to figure out every little sin that's going on in your life, which is how most Baptists would preach this, but the issue is unless you understand God's principle for sanctification, which is confession of sin, so that you're back in fellowship, you can't go forward. So they have to go through the process, and for them the details are a little bit different, and so they, uh, there's going to be a penalty. Then it shall be that uh, they're going to go through this process to identify the tribe, and then the clan, and then the family, and finally the individual who committed this offense, and then there is a penalty. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. Now why is he burned with fire, not stoned? See, that's the general penalty that you have through most of the Mosaic Law. What does burning with fire do? Purification. Purification of sin. That's the problem. Is sin is in the camp and there needs to be purification. So he shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So the next morning they get up in verses 16 and following describe the whole process where they identify the tribe of Judah, and the family, and then eventually they come down to the family of Zabdi and identify Achan, and Achan is identified, in verse 19, Joshua confronts him and tells him to make confession to God and tell me me what you have done, and don't hide it. Verse 20, Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God, and this is what I have done this is a great example of a confession prayer, I have sinned against the Lord this is what I did, I took this in violation of the commandment I'm sure he felt very badly about this because he knew he was about to die but that wasn't the point of his confession, was how he felt he then admits that he he took the uh, 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 beautiful Babylonian garment, he took 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, he said I coveted them, mental attitude sin took them, uh, overt sin, and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent. So Joshua sent messengers and they dug up the silver and found all of the booty that he had stolen and they took them from uh, Achan. Then, verse 24, then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters. think this is fair to his sons and daughters. See, I hope this challenges your concept, your American concept, Western European concept of justice. We have this thing of corporate unity here. So they take the sons and daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, brought them to the Valley of Achor, and Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? And all Israel stoned him with stones, and then they burned him with fire that's the purification after they had stoned him with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones still there to this day I mean not to this day but at the time the writer wrote Joshua it was still there in other words this is an object lesson how many times in the the, uh, Old Testament they set up these stone cairn monuments so that later on 50, 100, 200 years later you would go by and your little boy would say well, Daddy, what's that pile of rocks over there? And then there would be an object lesson to teach doctrine. And that's what that was all about. So the point I'm making here is that in the Old Testament here, you have it with David's sin at the end of Second Samuel. You have it in other passages in, in, the, um, in the Old Testament. There is this corporate unity. And so this demonstrates not only is there a physical unity because he is, he's Jewish, That's the point of the genealogy. Takes him back, shows that there is a physical unity with Israel, but there's also this representative aspect as well. He is a representative of the nation because he sinned, all sinned. And so you have the same principle there that you have in in Romans chapter 5, that when Adam sinned, all sinned immediately, directly. Everyone is is immediately guilty of, of Adam's sin the instant he sinned, just as everyone in the nation Israel was immediately guilty of Achan's sin when he did it, even though they didn't know anything about it. So this is a solid biblical principle that extends throughout Scripture. Now, next time we'll come back and get into the issue that the point that point comes up in verses 13 and 14 which shows the importance of understanding this is Adam's sin and that people don't have their own personal sins imputed to them that's not the cause of our condemnation it is Adam's, Adam's original sin which we are guilty of uh, both similarly and federally so we'll come back to that next time Father thank you for this opportunity to study your word to think about these principles a little more clearly to understand this, this whole concept of corporate unity and corporate responsibility and because it helps us to understand the federal representative relationship of Adam to the race as well as the representative aspect of Christ's substitutionary death for the entire race and that we can know that just as Adam's sin affected the entire race so that Christ's death on the cross was for the entire human race and we can have salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.